The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. Hello, son. All right, friends, good morning. You can find your way to your seats again. As you grab your Bibles, please open. Am I not? We're good? Why aren't you just in the front row? That's really the best. Okay. That's fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, good morning, folks. Hello? Is that working? That's on. Channel 5. There you go. Hello? Hello, test. Hello. All right, we're good. It's coming through. Okay, good morning. Please open your Bible to... Galatians chapter 5. As you might have noticed this morning, it's the first Sunday in Advent. Uh, however, we have not begun a new Advent series. We're going to continue our way through the book of Galatians. And partly that's just convenient and allows us to continue to make progress without taking a whole month off from the argument and the logic that we've been working on over the last several months as Paul's been laying that out and as we've been studying together. And also partly um, convenience because I just didn't figure out what a good Advent series would be. And so what better place to stay in than just where we've been in the Bible already. Um, so yeah, it's my fault. If you love Advent series, it's my fault. Uh, but we have, we have the candle and thank you Kendrick and Taylor for, for uh, leading in that devotion for us. We're going to continue in Galatians chapter 5. Please turn there. We're going to begin in the verse 6 verses of Galatians 5. Now remember that when we started this series, we identified three major um, parts of the book of Galatians. The first was a history or a biographical sketch of Paul and how he came to be an apostle, his authority, and why he's able to speak like he is. And then the last two chapters we looked at, chapters 3 and 4, were really about theology. Some of the meat and potatoes of justification by faith alone and why that's important. Paul talking about the spirit and the flesh, about the law and faith, and wrestling with that to help the readers and us understand the core of the gospel message that he preached to Galatians. And so the verses, or chapters 5 and 6, can sort of summarize, be summarized as ethics or the Christian life. It's kind of the, here's what we do with all of that, where all of this is headed. Because it's not simply theology for theology's sake, but we want to see how Paul takes his theology, this doctrine of justification, which he's labored so hard in teaching, and which he spent months so far looking at, and figuring out how does that fit in with the Christian life? What does justification by faith alone enable us to do as Christians? Right? Orthodoxy needs to lead to orthopraxy. Good doctrine needs to lead to 
good practice. And if we miss the one, we're going to miss the other. So Paul is not simply just delivering a theological epistle and a treatise so that his churches there in Galatia could study and debate among themselves. He gives them the theology, and then he helps them understand how that fits in. And so over the next really two months, we'll see over the, the, the verses or chapters 5 and 6 what that looks like. But let's read verses 1 through 6 together in chapter 5, and then we'll pray and ask for God's help. Paul writes, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your word this morning. May we, over the next 45 minutes, dwell in it and allow it to dwell in us richly. That we may see and take from it all that is important and vital for our need of grace and understanding of the gospel. We ask God that you would teach us through your word and illuminate our hearts and mind by your spirit to see the beauty of Christ, the freedom we have in Christ, and the walking out of that freedom in Christ through faith. We ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin this morning by suggesting to you that Christianity is the only free religion. Christianity is the only truly free religion. What do I mean? Well, consider the other religions of the world. Judaism, of course, still requires obedience to the law as a standard of God's righteous perfection. Though there are various theologies and philosophies, as there are in any religion, by and large, the Jewish faith today still maintains that to please God, you must obey the law. And so just as Paul's been laboring to show us in the book of Galatians, to be under the law is to be under slavery. You're not truly free if you're under the guardianship of the law. Islam, the Muslim faith, also demands a strict adherence to the teaching of the Quran and its prophet, Muhammad. The outcomes of the faith promised to the adherence of Islam are very much conditioned and predicated upon the obedience to the teachings of its adherents. Buddhism requires you to reach a certain level of Zen before you can enter into nirvana or a stage of enlightenment. You have to know and study and meditate and somehow enter into a spiritual mental plane 
that exists above or beyond or whatever nonsense they come up with, but it's still predicated upon your enlightenment that you achieve. Hinduism demands that you must live righteously, give out good karma if you are to hope for reincarnation and a better life in the one to come. These just are four snapshots of many world religions, all of which teach, teach the same thing, that you have to perform or achieve some outward duty in order to obtain or receive the reward at the end of the day. Whether that's some paradise in the next life or another cyclical version of a better life in the one to come or some spiritual nebulous thing which you enter into in some way, form, or fashion, all world religions teach you that you must do something, perform in some way, in order to merit whatever they're promising. Well, on the surface, you'd be forgiven if you thought Christianity was like that. Because there are a lot of things we believe as Christians we are obligated to do in submission and obedience to the Bible. There are commands in Scripture, not just the ones in the Old Testament which Christ has fulfilled, but even in the New, Jesus commands for us to do many things which we are obligated to obey, to love for and pray for our enemies, to feed the homeless, to clothe the poor, to do all sorts of good works and good deeds, to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, love our neighbor as ourselves. There's no shortage of commandments expressed in the New Testament that Christians today are obligated to obey. But upon deeper inspection, you'll find that Christianity is not like these other religions because Christianity does not predicate your receiving of eternal life on any of those works. Christianity is the only free religion where the only means by which you can obtain eternal life, the promised reward that God offers to His people, is not by a duty or a merit or an obligation or a work, but by faith. And this faith itself is a gift. And so you and I are nothing, as Christians, are nothing but recipients of grace. Now that may seem like you have no part in the process. And I'll leave the theological debates about how and why and if that's true or not to some other notable theologians in the room. But the truth is that Christianity as a free religion means that you and I do not earn ourselves into salvation, cannot keep our way into salvation, but it is all given to us by faith completely apart from our works. Now, if you've been around for the last couple of months, if you've read your Bible at all, in the New Testament especially, you'll say yes and amen. That's sort of standard fare for Christian theology and orthodoxy, right? Now, what do I mean then when I say Christianity being the only free religion? I simply mean that we can walk in that freedom as a people that have been purchased by Christ. In fact, that is the purpose of the purchasing, is that we be free. This is what he says in verse 5. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Why did Christ set you free? For freedom. The reward is the motivation that Christ goes to the cross, the Son of God takes on the flesh of man, lives a perfect, sinless life, is crucified by His enemies on earth, 
suffers the wrath of God against all unrighteousness and sin, is put in a tomb, is risen by God on the third day, ascends to his right hand, sits at the right hand of the Father, intercedes for us, sends to us from the Father his Spirit, so that it may dwell within us, guide us, teach us, and illuminate us, and to lead us into all righteousness, so that we can be free. That was the whole point. Now it's said in many different ways throughout the New Testament, to rescue, to redeem sinners, to seek and save the lost, to reconcile us to the Father. But the heart of the Christian religion is freedom, it says. Now just as an aside, let me say that religion is not a bad word. I know some of you are saying, wait, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Don't you know it's about the relationship with Jesus, not a religion? If you're into religion, you're just like all the other guys. Well, I would say, no, that's not true. It is a bit reductionistic, I think, to dismiss Christianity or dismiss religion just on the basis of it being a religion. So we have to define that. I think if a religion is simply an institution that's governed by a set of shared belief and ethics, then a religion is not only a good thing, I think it might even be a necessary thing. Let me put it this way, maybe I can make my point. To dismiss religion in favor of a relationship is a bit like dismissing schools in favor of education. Does it make sense? It's not about the schools. It's not about the teachers and the homework and the assignments and the tests. It's about getting educated. Yes. And how are we to educate? through the institution of schools, or homeschooling, if you'd like. But the point is, there's some means by which we are to be educated. The same is, how do we have the relationship that is central to the gospel message, the relationship with God the Father through Christ and the power of the Spirit? That comes through, the word we use is religion, the set of doctrines and belief that teach us about Christ, that help us understand who He is and what He's done to help us make sense of the doctrine of justification by faith so that we don't fall into the traps of earning our salvation or keeping ourselves by our own strength and creativity and ingenuity. So religion is not at all a bad word. It's a necessary idea or concept to help us understand exactly what we're trying to get at. That as a religion, we are free in Christ. And this is unique among all other world religions. And so this morning, what I want to do is explore the nature of that Christian freedom in Christ. I want to see how it relates to our faith and, and to the Christian life as a whole. This is what Paul will do over chapters 5 and 6 together. And the reason I think this is important, and we're going to start with just six verses in what is really a larger passage, is that I think too often Christians, myself included, will feel trapped by their own religion. We'll begin to think that Christianity is like these other religions and that we have to maintain a certain good order. That we have to keep ourselves in the right standing with God through our works of obedience. Now to be sure, there are consequences, earthly and real consequences, for our disobeying what the Bible clearly commands for us to do. But if we begin with the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and that in Christ we are free, then we must continue and ultimately end in the same truth. But too often we end up trapping ourselves, or as Paul would say, coming back under a yoke of slavery by our own religion. 
And this is a very serious issue. This is why you tend to not feel joy when it comes to things like gathering with the church, when it comes time to, to give to those around you, not just of your money, but of your time and your resources. When you're having to pour yourself out and love your enemy, to care for or bear with the failings of the weak, to love the person in the church that's been difficult to love, to try to not lose your anger at your children or your spouse. The reason that that's not joyful laboring is because too often we end up transforming those commandments into duties that we must obey to keep ourselves in right standing with the Lord instead of recognizing we have been free to do those things. And so we'll see that this is a very serious issue. In fact, I'll put it this way. This is the main idea if you're taking notes. That your Christ-purchased freedom is the key to life-sustaining joy. Okay? Your Christ-purchased freedom, that is the freedom for which Christ died that you may have, that's what I mean when I say Christ-purchased freedom, this is the key to life-sustaining joy. We want joy, but we want the kind of joy that lasts more than just today and tomorrow, that lasts on into eternity. What's the key to get that kind of joy? It is the Christ-purchased freedom from the cross. Your Christ-purchased freedom is the key to life-sustaining joy. So, in the argument, in the wrestling of the, the discussion with your spouse, or the laboring and rationalizing, or reasoning or lack thereof with your children, or the having to convince yourself to, to bear with another slow to grasp the good news unbeliever, or the hard to love Christian, or the persevering Christian, or weaker brother or sister in our midst, the key to joy in the midst of that circumstance is to understand the Christ-purchased freedom. And this is Paul's whole intent. So notice what he does here in verse 1. He gives this sort of classic formula with an indicative followed by the imperative. Now, an indicative is a true statement, right? Any English teachers here? An indicative is, this is true. An imperative is a command that follows from the indicative. So what's the indicative here? For freedom, Christ has set us free. That's the truth. For freedom, Christ has set us free. What's it say in the second part of verse 1? Stand firm, therefore. There's the imperative. That's the command. Stand firm, therefore, because of the freedom which Christ has purchased for us. Therefore, you stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So the imperative, stand firm, isn't to contradict the indicative, which is Christ has set us free, but actually results from it. It flows from it. Because Christ has set you free, you can now stand firm in that freedom against all unrighteousness, against the yoke of slavery, the snares and the trap of the enemy. At this point, I think we should probably define freedom so that we're all working with the same vocabulary. Here's a helpful definition that I, I tend to use for Christian freedom. Christian freedom is the ability and the willingness to not do as we please, but to do as we ought. Christian freedom is the ability and the willingness not to do as we please, but to do as we ought. 
That is, we're not free as Christians to do anything and everything we desire at any given moment. But we have been freed by Christ so that we can do what we ought to do. That is, to live to our fullest potential and purpose as Christ has commanded us. Now, the caveat to this, of course, is that in Christ and in our sanctification, as we mature as Christians, what we please to do is what we ought to do. So we actually see that definition fading in the background and the Christian life becoming more and more obedience to the will of the Father as our wills line up with His. But for now, a good working definition of the Christian freedom, which I think Paul here has in mind for us today, as we are on the road to maturity, is that Christian freedom is the ability and the willingness not to do as we please, but to do as we ought. So what kind of freedom is it then that Paul envisions? What kind of freedom is it that Christ died to secure for us? Notice this is life-preserving liberty. Freedom in the sense of not being able to do anything and everything, but freedom from a captor. Liberty from a tyrant. That's the kind of freedom here Paul has in mind when he says that Christ purchased your freedom for you. You have freedom or liberty from the tyranny of the enemy who has laid snares and traps that you might fall into temptation and sin. He has freed you, given you liberty from the bondage of sin under which we all were once captive. Ephesians chapter 2 illustrates this so beautifully. We were, we were dead in our sins and trespasses. We all once walked following the prince of the power of the air, all alike unrighteous sons of disobedience. John would say that we are under the sway of the evil one, every single one of us. But we have been liberated from that captivity, liberated from that bondage. Literally the chains that shackled us to our sin and to the influence of our captor have been broken. We have life-preserving liberty. That is, we're not a slave, but a son. That's chapters 2 and 3 in the book of Galatians. Not a slave, not even a servant in the house, but an heir of the promises. But another kind of freedom here, or another dimension of that same freedom, is not just life-preserving liberty, but the kind of freedom that is expressed in unburdened joy. That is, you have this pleasant, willing submission to God's will through the power of the Spirit. That is, when you become an heir, a member of the household of God, this means to be indwelled with His promised Holy Spirit, that you may do all that He has commanded you to do in willful submission and joyful obedience, unburdened by the obligation and the responsibility to have to do something because you've been told, but the joy to submit to the will of Him who has redeemed you. And this joy has been wrought in our hearts by the Spirit. This is what He gives to us. So the kind of freedom here is the ability and the willingness not to do as we please, but to do as we ought, that is marked by this life-preserving liberty and this unburdened joy as we submit to the freedom that God has given us. And so with this kind of freedom in mind, I think Paul here soberly illustrates the peril of continuing down the path of slavery versus standing firm on the foundation of faith and freedom. We're going to look at each one of these. Just consider the life under a yoke of slavery, in verses 2 through 4. He goes on to say, that he says, look, I, Paul, he, he's referencing his direct authority, 
I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And I testify again, every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law, for you have fallen away from grace. So he says, you don't want to return. If you've been liberated from your captor, you don't walk back into the enemy's camp. If you've been given unburdened joy, you don't turn the freedom and the gift of that joy back into an obligation and a burden. But this is exactly what the Galatians were in danger of doing if they were to follow after the teaching of these agitators, of the Judaizers that had come into the church. So he says here, when we submit to a yoke of slavery, when we come back under this burden, we do three things. First, we gain nothing from Christ. All the advantage we have in Christ goes out the window when we go back under the yoke of slavery. In the Galatians context, when they submit themselves to circumcision, effectively coming back under the law, everything that Christ does done for them, useless. He makes the same point earlier in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, where he says, if you submit yourself to the law, if you go back under the yoke of slavery and under the law, then Christ has died for nothing. In other words, if we try to help ourselves without looking to Christ, then Christ will be of no help to us at all. And he's thinking specifically here of the last judgment. You will have no advantage of Christ in his intercession for you at the last day when you stand before God in judgment. What advantage will Christ be to you when you've rejected him for a yoke of slavery? When the master who has freed you has been rejected and spurned to go back into slavery, will he then vindicate you on the last day of judgment? Well, Paul warns us very quickly and seriously, when we submit again to a yoke of slavery, we gain nothing from Christ and we render null and void, useless, all the work of Christ has done on the cross. One commentator put it this way, that Christ's finished work cannot be refinished. It can only be destroyed. What Christ did on the cross and through the empty tomb must be received by faith alone. If we try to add our works to His, then His work no longer does us any good. You can see why Paul says, don't return to the yoke of slavery. You're undoing everything Christ has done for you. He will be of no advantage to you when you stand before God on the last day. You gain nothing from Him. There is no benefit you may draw from Christ when you reject him. You cannot add to his work, refinish his work. You can only accept it or by your rejection, destroy it. So when you submit again to a yoke of slavery, you gain nothing from Christ. But also notice that we are remain in the debt of the law. In verse three, I testify again that every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated then to keep the whole law. He said this several times already. He even quotes from the Old Testament that those who are to keep the law are cursed by all of it to obey it. We remain in debt to the law when we think it is okay for us to receive again a yoke of slavery. See, God's demand for perfect righteousness and obedience must still be met. And if it's not going to be met for us in Christ, then we have to find it elsewhere, namely here through the law. And so we end up shouldering the whole burden of the law's demands. 
and along with it all the impossibly heavy weight on our shoulders of its righteous requirements, which we cannot fill and carry. We are in debt to the law. We are obligated to keep all of it, and we are unable to fulfill this obligation. This, again, was Paul's point in earlier chapters. You cannot keep the law. You are corrupted in the flesh. The law is weakened by your flesh and therefore unable to save you. Your righteousness can't be found there. And therefore, if you go back into a yoke of slavery, you go back under the corrupting and the burdening power of the law. You remain in debt, unable to fulfill God's commands. But not only this, we we are warned that if we put ourselves under the yoke of slavery again, we also, thirdly, cut ourselves off from grace. You are severed, it says in verse 4. You are severed from Christ. Now this is sort of a play on words. He's been talking about circumcision here, which of course is the severing of a certain skin from a certain part. I think Paul, a little tongue-in-cheek, says, you want to sever yourself? Might as well sever yourself from Christ. In fact, he goes a little further and talks about those agitators and says, I wish I'd go ahead and just completely take the whole thing off. It's a little, it's in the Bible. It's really there. We'll get there next week, I think. We don't skip over the hard parts of the Bible, Kendrick, so it's there. No, he says if you go under a yoke of slavery, you cut yourselves off from grace. You sever yourself. That is, to look elsewhere for your justification is to look outside of the realm of grace. If you want to find justification, you have to look inside the realm of grace where it is found. But to look elsewhere for justification means necessarily that you look outside of the realm of grace. Or in other words, to take steps in any direction toward anything else for your justification is to walk away from Christ. Christ is at the center. He is the means of your justification. And therefore, to seek to find it anywhere else is necessarily, by definition, to walk away from Christ. You sever that relationship. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have both Christ and the law. Circumcision and faith. Paul says it is all or nothing, one or the other. If you want circumcision, you cannot have Christ. If you want Christ, you must repudiate circumcision or the law or any self-righteous means for justification. I like the way Calvin puts it. He says, whoever wants to have a half-Christ loses the whole. That's good. Whoever wants to have a half of Christ loses the whole. You can't just have the bit of Christ you like. You take all of him or you have none of him. Or Luther. It's a lot of of Reformed quotes today. He puts it this way. This is a great illustration. Better than I can come up with, so I'm going to quote him a little bit at length. He says, For just as someone on a ship is drowned, regardless of the part of the ship from which he falls into the sea, so is someone who falls away from grace cannot help perishing. The desire to be justified by the law, therefore, is shipwreck. It is exposure to the surest peril of eternal death. What can be more insane and wicked than to want to lose the grace and favor of God and to retain the law of Moses, whose retention makes it necessary for you to accumulate wrath and every other evil for yourself? Now, those who seek to be justified on the basis of the moral law fall away from grace. Where, I ask, will those who... who fall in their self-righteousness, seek to be justified on the basis of their traditions and vows to the lowest, lowest depths of hell. 
So what kind of slave, what kind of what, what does this kind of slavery all have in common? It's ultimately that it treats Christ like a bank teller, dispersing the funds of grace only when we feel like it or when we think we may need it. Ultimately, this kind of slavery and the yoke of the slavery cheapens the gospel. That's what Paul's concern is here, that it cheapens the gospel. It does not really want Christ, but only what Christ has done. It wants the benefits of Christ without the person of Christ, and only this when and how it suits them. And so, friends, you and I, we don't need to submit ourselves to circumcision in order to find ourselves in some form or fashion of slavery like Paul describes here. In fact, any notion of cheapening the gospel, improving upon the work of Christ, any moving away from grace, even by only a few degrees, is a form of slavery that renders the entire product of God's grace null and void. That's how dangerous this is. And so we can think about this as a form of modern-day slavery. I think none of us here are tempted to go off and circumcise ourselves or to obey every command of the Old Testament law. But there is a form of modern-day slavery, which we may put ourselves under, that fits exactly into the sort of form and rubric Paul describes here. We allow ourselves to come under a yoke of slavery and burden again when we, for instance, try to supplement God's grace with our works. And Christians are so good at this. We love to do works, and we love to be praised for our works. We think that what we do might credit us in some way, find favor in other men's eyes, but hopefully one time in the favor in the eyes of God. We try to supplement what God has done with what we can do in small ways. God has saved us. God has done this. But we also are really disciplined in our study here. I've read the Bible every day. I've checked every box on my reading plan. I've made sure to never miss a Sunday. I've made sure to never miss a family worship. When we try to supplement God's grace with our own works, we end up, even by a few degrees, coming up under the yoke and the burden of slavery, just like the Galatians. Moreover, we do this when we begin to demand more of ourselves and others than the Scripture requires. We can put a burden and a yoke on other people and on ourselves when we say that the Scripture requires us to be this way or that way when it really doesn't. That's slavery. To say that you must be a certain way, dress a certain way, sing certain songs, do certain things, you must behave in all these sorts of ways that are not regulated by Scripture, and we demand and bind the consciences of other people, not least ourselves, then we too have put ourselves and others under a yoke of slavery. So when we try to supplement God's grace with our works or demand more of ourselves than other than scriptures require, we make ourselves legalists. We also do this when we insist on the priority of peripheral matters above what is truly essential. Those tertiary elements of theology that are important but aren't vital, not essential to our worship and to our unity in Christ, when we elevate those to second and even first priority issues, we now have put a burden, a yoke of slavery on other people to demand that certain people share our view of the end time or to have some understanding of our interpretation of the book of Revelation or any other certain theological thing that we may want to think of or how exactly we think family worship or devotions may go, how often or how much Bible you should read in a certain day or month or year. All of these are tertiary issues that can be raised to an unrighteous primary issue which is burdening 
and putting a yoke of slavery on others. And when you insist upon that, you become a slave master. We also can do this by attempting to pay back God what He has done for us. This is what others have called the gratitude ethic. And we're thankful for what the Lord has done for us, and so we feel some obligation to begin to pay back God. Now, as good Christians, we know we can never pay back God, but we think in some small way, as a token of our appreciation, God, I will do this for you because what you did for me. And on the surface, that sounds well and good, but it is not the kind of freedom for which Christ died. He did not give you eternal life so that you may live in his debt forever. Though certainly, if it were a debt, we could not pay it back. The gratitude ethic, one commentator puts it, tends to put you in the position of a debtor instead of a son. You can begin to see how that distorts the whole gospel. That's slavery. None of us feels completely free while we are burdened with a debt to be repaid. Have you ever owed somebody money and been with them while you purchase something and not for them? You don't feel free to do that even when the gift was free and clear? If you view what one has done for you as a debt, you will never fully be free. Christ does not want you to relate to him as a debtor who uses the law to make installment payments on an unending plan. You have been free. So a form of modern-day slavery is to put yourself under this ethic where you think you have to pay back God in small good works so that you can keep yourself in favor, or at least express gratitude. But that's a subtle but dangerous form of slavery, which we must examine and see if it's within our own hearts. Certainly there are many more, but you get the point. That when we put ourselves under the yoke of slavery, we do some real damage and distortion to the gospel. But in verses 5 and 6, there's the positive example of what he means. If you're not under the yoke of slavery, then Christians, you are called to stand on the foundation of freedom and faith. For if under the yoke of slavery we gain nothing from Christ's work, and we lose our ability to stand with him in judgment, what then is gained by our freedom from the burden of the law and the bondage of sin? What do we receive as a benefit from such freedom? Well, Paul gives us two things in verses 5 and 6. First is that we give and are receiving a faith-sustained anticipation. A faith-sustained anticipation. Verse 5 says, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. This is a faith-sustained anticipation or eager longing of the return of Christ. We celebrate Advent this Sunday and this month. But at the second Advent of Christ, His return, our faith will be made sight. Now we worship not by sight but by faith. But soon we will see, Paul puts it in Corinthians, Christ face to face. Our faith will be made sight and the author and the finisher of our faith will be bodily and visible before us. And so with His return, the fullness of our justification will be ushered into reality. This is the hope of our righteousness. All the joy and all of the fruition that has been promised in Christ will be a reality that which, in which we live. And that means, friends, in this moment, joy is not to be diminished, diminished in the waiting. Joy is not diminished in the waiting, nor is it quenched on the long road of despair between the now and the not yet. 
as we wait eagerly for the hope of righteousness, for the return of Christ, the second advent of our Savior, the joy in the meantime is not diminished in our waiting or quenched along the road of despair between now and not yet. In other words, the objective reality of our justification begins to form the basis of our sustaining joy as we wait for the Lord's appearing. So the the command for us then, because we've been freed by Christ, is to look at His second coming with joy and anticipation, even as we endure the trials of the now. Even as the pressures and the persecutions of this world creep in, as we battle against sin in our own members, we look to the second coming, to the joy that comes from our eager longing sustained by faith. This is real anticipation. The second thing we must understand about the foundation of freedom is that we also receive a spirit-empowered obedience. We have faith-sustained hope or anticipation and a spirit-empowered obedience. This is what he says in verse 6. For this is the ground of our waiting and hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but faith working through love. What does this mean? It means our justification is the real animating force behind our obedience. We are not justified by our obedience, but our obedience is animated by our justification. That's the way it flows. Faith is the sole basis of our justification. Not our works, not even our love, not our theology, but that justification by which we receive God's righteous declaration, produces a spirit-wrought faith and fruit of obedience. It is faith working through love. To put it one way, we can say that our relationship to works is fundamentally altered. We perform good works now not out of obligation, to please or to pay back God, but in joyful obedience to His will. Here's an illustration to to prove that point. My command to Shepard to clean up his toys at the end of the day can be taken one of two ways. One, he can huff and puff and stomp his feet and begrudgingly pick up the dinosaurs and the Legos, throw them in the basket, shove the basket in. No joy, but obedience, technically. Or, he says, Dad, can you help me? And I can get down, and we can do it together. And suddenly, he's picking up the Legos or the dinosaurs, not with a burdened sense of obligation, but with a joyful, willful submission to my command. He knows in the one case, if he doesn't do it, there's punishment for disobedience. The rules of our house are, usually, clean up after your mess. But when I'm there with him, he feels free to obey, not as a sense of obligation, but as a loving submission to my will. It's like this with the Lord. He can command us to obey, And we can feel burdened by the obligation to obey. Or, if we are truly free, dwelling in the presence of God through the Spirit, 
we can joyfully submit ourselves to that work, not as the basis of our justification, but as fruit of our relationship with the Father through Christ. All of this means that we have a spirit-empowered obedience. That's the real definition of the good works in the religion of Christianity, is that our obedience is spirit-empowered to love the commands God gives and to joyfully obey them, not out of a sense of obligation or command or duty, but out of a sense of love. It doesn't release us from the obligation to obey them, but it frees us from the burden of thinking those things are unbearable commands. To put it in the way the Puritans and the hymn writers would put it, it is love which constrains command to obedience. All of this, of course, leads us to the place where we started this morning in verse 1. Paul says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. So just consider for a moment, brothers and sisters, your own freedom in Christ. Do you consider the commands, the commands of the new covenant reality of Christianity as a freeing sense of reality in which you live? Or are the small promises and commandments of the New Testament burdens to you or duties to perform? Ways that you pay back God to demonstrate your allegiance to Him. And we must recognize that if for freedom Christ has set us free, it is imperative that we then walk in that freedom. Not as slaves or as children begrudgingly obeying our Father, but as one who has the very presence of our Father with us, who delights in the obedience of His will. Indeed, as we delight, the Spirit works in us so that our will is to do the will of our Father. And so we can, with joy, stand steadfast and steadfast in the truth. If the imperative, because of the indicative freedom in Christ, which, in which we are free, if the imperative is to stand firm, we do this only when we recognize the true nature of our freedom. Not obligation or duty, but love and joyful submission. We may stand firm and not submit ourselves to modern-day slavery, not to look how we may, we may simply supplement God's grace with our works or begin to demand more of ourselves or others than the word or scripture requires. Not to insist upon a priority of all these peripheral matters because they're not essential or to try to pay back some gratitude ethic for what he has done for us. It means to live in sustained anticipation by faith and to be empowered by the Spirit to obey God in joy. That's what it means to walk in freedom. And it is to this Christ has suffered and died. He has taken on the penalty for our sin so that we may truly walk in freedom, not in slavery. Walk in justification, not in condemnation. And walk in joy and not in fear. That's what the freedom of Christ accomplishes for us. Let's pray. Father, we ask, God, that we would continually see more clearly the work that Christ has accomplished for us on the cross as the means of accomplishing and securing for us, providing and purchasing for us our freedom. May we be honest with ourselves in ways that we have attempted to put ourselves back under the yoke of slavery. How we have dangerously placed ourselves in the very real danger of severing ourselves from Christ. But Lord, in giving us that acknowledgement and clarity, help us then to see how we truly can walk in such freedom, enjoying 
by the very definition of that word, enjoying that freedom by submitting ourselves to your word and will. We love Christ, for in Christ we have true freedom. Not the freedom to do anything and everything, but that which we were made to do, and what we must do. We may glorify you in all things. We love you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more, or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. To this I owe, my hope is only Jesus, for my life is wholly bound to Him. Oh, how strange and divine I can sing all is mine.